Hi there, and welcome to episode 15 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I am your co-host, Matt Larson, and with me, as always, is... Cricket Lou. Nice to be here again. Yes, how, how are we doing uh, in terms of intervals between podcasts? Um, well, <laughs> I not guess real not good. <laughs> well. <laughs> I wouldn't be patting ourselves on the back. Yes. But, but it is, you know, it is, a, as I used to say at, at HP, a G job, right? Yes. What? So now, it, G stood for government, right? Yeah, yeah, which I thought was, uh, was interesting. But I think that they meant it as something I do as a, uh, you know, in my spare time, right? Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me of something that happened at, at HP that somebody did as a G-job that was just one of the nicest things I've ever had happen to me to this day in corporate America. And that was, I'm sure you remember um, how difficult it was to use any non-HP keyboard with an HP 9000 Unix workstation there for a long time. I, I don't remember that particularly, but I do remember that like the early ones used um, like HP HIL, HP right. Human Interface Loop, which was, I, I don't, I have no idea what the heck that was. But Right. And when I started in 92, that was still all you could do. Yeah. And I just remember uh, coming from Sun Workstations in college, how awful I thought HP keyboards were. Mm-hmm. And, and I have um, RSI problems, not really bad ones, but if I'm typing on the wrong kind of keyboard, uh, it will eventually start to cause me problems. And so I just desperately wanted to use some different keyboard, but I was stuck. And I mentioned this in the HP news groups. I don't, don't remember quite how I found out about this, but somebody said, Oh yeah, I've I've got a converter that'll convert uh, the PS2, you know, which at the time was the really big. Remember the really big original uh, IBM PC keyboard connectors? Yeah, yeah. It it converted that uh, to HIL. Hmm. And and he said, uh, I'll send you one. So this thing arrived. I think it arrived like in an inner office mail envelope. I don't remember who it was or where he was. Somewhere Colorado probably. And it was this really nicely made little thing obviously a homemade project with a little homemade circuit board in it and this guy was cranking these out and it was just like here you go here's your nice free converter yeah that's remarkable yeah yeah where else but hp would that happen i ask you (laughs) well you remember you remember old relay the uh gosh what was it an 820 originally that we uh we used as our primary 835 i just want to say does that sound right well it was it was later (laughs) okay I think it wasn't originally. I think it was an 820. And uh, I remember really suffering through performance problems with that thing. It was just awful. Um, you know, it used to take forever to generate the hp.com zone data, which was was um, generated from the host table, if I remember correctly, using the old hosts to name D uh, shell script. Right, before it was a Perl script. Exactly. Before, before Paul... Albert's rewrote it, and it became, I don't know, two orders of magnitude faster. <laughs> it was a shell script, and it used, like, you know, set and awk and all sorts of other horrifying stuff. I think it was 2,500 lines of shell script. And uh, the performance was just abysmal. It was both the primary uh, hp.com name server, and it was the, uh, the main mail relay into and out of HP. And the performance was terrible, and and uh, I complained about it bitterly to management, but I couldn't get them to spring for any extra memory for the box. 
And I think someone, I don't know whether I actually complained publicly about it, but, but uh, a gal at our division in Puerto Rico sent me uh, a memory module for the thing, which list price probably was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, but uh, somehow managed to, to, you know, disappear one from the production line, I guess. <laughs> and, Excellent. Uh, yeah. And then all of a sudden it just arrived, you know postmarked uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and uh, we plugged that in, and the, the performance was much better. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's the old HP way. Those were the good old days. <laughs> yes. Bill and Dave would have been proud. Well, should we answer some questions? I, I think so. I think, that, uh, I think that the title of the podcast kind of <laughs> compels us to, doesn't it? All right. Well, uh, we have a couple of questions this week. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the first one. Uh, we apologize in advance for not knowing how to pronounce uh, this person's name. And speaking of HP, he signs off saying he is an HP hostmaster. All right. Uh, so we think it's from Noe uh, Neverez. And uh, he writes us, uh, it's kind of a long paragraph, but I'm going to go ahead and read it all. Uh, he says, I have a question about the reliability of NSLOOKUP. We have uh, an AnyCast routing structure which points clients to the closest data center for DNS resolution. We often have escalations where application teams, oh, application developers, the bane of, <laughs> of DNS administrators' existence, yes. uh, where application teams blame DNS for their problems when most of the time this isn't the case. Mm -hmm. The reason our team usually gets involved is because they show us DNS timeouts, quote unquote, when resolving DNS records using the NSLOOKUP command. This happens intermittently every 10 or so queries. We do not get these resolution timeouts when using dig or host when querying the DNS servers in the exact same data center as the user. Of course, we're always looking at the network for possible signs of latency, but we hardly come up with anything. The timeout issue usually goes away for a couple of months, but then we are brought back into the exact same situation with other teams. The people usually having these issues are running Windows servers configured to point to our AnyCast load balancing virtual IP. So, NSLOOKUP versus dig and host. Yeah, yeah. It's an age-old uh, battle, isn't it? Although I think that at this point, every, uh, every serious DNS administrator prefers dig over NSLOOKUP. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that the problem, of course, though, is that we've got these application developers who don't know any better. That's They're right. Just firing up NSLOOKUP. That's right. Well, and, and it's shipped as part of the uh, part of the Windows operating system. So. Right. It's it's ubiquitous. Good luck finding dig on Windows without going through some hoops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first thought when I, I read uh, Noe's message was that there are some behavioral differences uh, between NSLOOKUP and dig. And one of them is that when NSLOOKUP starts up, uh, one of the things that it tries to do is to reverse map the IP address of the name server it's querying to uh, a domain name in order to print that domain name in a little header, which says usually default server or server, de depending on the version of NSLOOKUP and how you use it. And if it can't do that, uh, if, for example, that query times out, it may very well print a message saying, hey, there was a timeout, even though that timeout is not necessarily a timeout in response to the query that, uh, that, that you're interested in, right? It's just the, the query that's necessary in order to print that banner. And if memory serves, you'd fire up NSLOOKUP if this is the case. Uh, you'd get a timeout message, but then it just sends you to its prompt. And when you try the query that you intended to do in the first place, 
I think it just it just goes right, and if it if it works, it works, and you wouldn't see a timeout message. Right, right. I think that's that's correct. You probably would get in the banner, um, you know, under default server or server. You'd probably get you know unknown or or something like that. But NSLOOKUP, once it's in its interactive mode, would probably work just fine. Yeah, I wonder if it's entirely possible that um, that there's really an intermittent reverse mapping problem. That and seems that to me to be pretty likely, given, you know, in, in so many organizations, the reverse mapping namespace is not very well tended to. <laughs> you remember that? That was a constant battle at HP. Yeah, to say the least. Boy, that's uh, that's an understatement. Yeah, so it, you know, it's conceivable that it's that. The other thing that that just struck me when you were reading the the question was, what if it's uh, a timeout difference? For example, um, you know, Windows platforms are much more aggressive about timeouts than um, you know Unix systems traditionally are. And if I remember correctly, the Windows Resolver does a you know a one second, two second, four second, eight second timeout or something like that. Um, Whereas a, a bind resolver is, you know, uses considerably longer um, timeouts. You know, so. I seem to recall it's even worse than that. As of, uh, well, I wonder if it was XP or Windows 2003. Uh, it actually, now this is not NS Lookup. This is the, the system stub resolver. Uh, but it, I want to say it sent a query to your first selected name server and waited, I want to say, half a second, and then it shotgunned a query to all of your configured servers. Well, right, that's that's absolutely true, that it, it tries the first one in the list, it waits one second, I think it tries the second one in the list, it waits two seconds, and then it starts shotgunning to every name server that it knows about. And that, that is really heinous behavior from a resolver, because, of course, if you get that far, then... Um, all those name servers that are, are receiving those shotgun queries are, are just going to be recursively resolving the exact same RR set, basically in lockstep, right? Yep, spinning their wheels. Yeah, yeah, not not particularly uh, infrastructure friendly behavior. Let's see, anything else that could account for the difference? I think I think we've got two really good uh, two really good theories here. Yeah, I I would say that my guess is that it would be one. Uh, one or the other, and you know, no, he might be well served by uh, making sure that it's sort of standard operating procedure to have those application developers try dig as well as NSLOOKUP when they see this this phenomenon. And I'm sure that you can get some version of dig as a standalone uh, .exe for Windows. Yeah, remember we used to. I think we used to get it by just extracting it from one of the. Um, bind distributions that was built for for Windows. ISC generously started providing those from their site uh, for download a while back, and you know, <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> it was kind of like one of those candies where you uh, you know where you throw away. It's like it's like getting the big the big box of sugary cereal and you throw all the way, all the sugar away and you keep the little toy prize, <laughs> right? You download the entire uh, the entire prebuilt bind uh, distribution and throw away everything but the dig executable. Yeah, so that that would be my recommendation to do do some sort of uh, bandwidth consuming exercise like that. Uh, get a copy of dig.exe in your hip pocket so that the very next time somebody complains about this, you you ship them that that dig and say, "All right, now try it side by side. Tell me what happens." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, very good, very good. 
Well, shall I, uh, shall I read our next question? Sure. Okay. Well, this comes from Alan Shackelford, who uh, is a great guy, a guy I know who works at uh, Johns Hopkins, which is out near you. He works for the, um, the medical institution there at uh, Johns Hopkins. And he writes, if you have a zone called allen.edu, and under that zone, you have 20 other zones, each with a zone data file, and a stanza in namedy.conf, like bio.allen.edu and eng for engineering.allen.edu. If you sign allen.edu, does it in any way protect or affect the subdomains? Would it make sense to pull all these subdomains in and put them in the parent zone data? So I think that's a good question for you. I think, it's a, a, I think it's a very good question. Yeah, yeah. So what do you say? Well, I think you get very limited protection, but what you're really protecting uh, along the lines that I'm thinking is the allen.edu zone, the parent zone that you're signing itself, in that uh, by using NSEC records, uh, well, I mean, which is a part of signing a zone, you get the NSEC chain, and those NSEC records are signed, and what the NSEC records allow DNSSEC to provide is uh, authenticated denial of existence. Mm -hmm. So the uh, responses from the allen.edu zone uh, could send out uh, 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 provably uh, deniable uh, responses. Uh, so, so for example, if somebody queries for foo.allen.edu and it, it doesn't exist, the allen.edu zone uh, there can be a response with the appropriate NSEC record sign that uh, cryptographically asserts, you know, there is no foo.allen.edu subdomain. Right, right. So turning that around, what that means is that a bad guy uh, cannot spoof a subdomain into existence. Mm -hmm. So I suppose one way to look at it is that uh, one protection you get is not so much for the subdomains that you have, <laughs> right? But for the subdomains that you don't have, and that somebody can't spoof a subdomain into existence. The subdomains yet to come. Yes. Right. Uh, so th the short answer really is that that you know signing Allen.edu doesn't really do anything for you know doesn't do anything for existing subzones like bio.allen.edu. Every zone has its own uh, set of key pairs and has to be signed uh, independently, right? Correct. And a DNSSEC validator always knows whether the zone it is, uh, what, what the security state of it is, uh, whether it is, uh, let's see if I'm going to be able to remember all these. Well, there's, uh, there's provably secure, which is where you've got a trust anchor uh, or you followed uh, a DS record and you're, you know, you're building a chain of trust. Mm -hmm. uh, so you follow DS record from the parent to the child and then you expect the child to be secure. Uh, and then in, in this case, you have provably insecure which is where there is no DS record. And in fact, it's the NSEC record that proves for delegation the absence of the DS record. And therefore, the validator knows basically, okay, I'm leaving the security zone, as it were. I now know that even though allen.edu was assigned, I'm getting this signed assertion that says bio, for example, bio.allen.edu is not signed. So it knows not to expect signed responses, uh, you know, you're, you're back into no DNSSEC land. Right, right. Well, I think that's that's pretty much all there is to say about that, right? I think so, yeah. You either got to sign them and go to all the trouble of having, as you said, uh, key pairs for all of them. 
and uh, everything that that entails, you know, stepping on the treadmill because, you know, then <laughs> once you start signing, you have to keep signing so signatures don't expire and all that. Right. Uh, either that or if you can, pull them all in, you know, undelegate them. Right, which is which is something that Alan asked about whether it uh, whether it would actually be worth sort of consolidating into one big zone, one big Allen.edu zone that included bio and eng domain names. Yeah, and I dare say that there are probably a lot of delegations out there that don't need to exist, where you have the same organization running the parent zone and the child zone, and the exact same set of name servers for both the parent and the child. And when you look at a situation like that, you do have to step back and go, well. Why is the child delegated separately from the parent anyway? Why not just have it be part of the parent? Yeah. Yep. Now that makes sense. All, All right. right. Well, I uh, I would like to tell you a story about something interesting I saw this week. All right. Please do. I will try to make it quick and not, not a typical Matt story, which tends to <laughs> meander. <laughs> but as part of the root DNSSEC rollout, uh, one of the data sets that we're collecting uh, that's all going, let me give a plug for uh, DNS OARC uh, because uh, OARC is the uh, repository of all this data that the most of the root operators are very uh, helpfully and generously contributing. You're, you're just but, plugging them because you feel guilty about stealing their director. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that may be part of it. Uh, in any case, uh, all the root server, I should say almost all the root server operators are con contributing, sending in every single priming query that they get. And the mm -hmm. priming query is what uh, resolvers send, recursive name servers send when they start up. It's the query for um, the NS records for the root. And on April 14th, we had a big event in the deployment uh, process. We had... Uh, five servers start serving the DURS, the dynamically, or excuse me, the deliberately unvalidatable root zone, leaving only JRoot. So that was kind of a, a big day, and we were all, I won't say nervously watching, but we wondered what would uh, what would happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Dwayne Wessels went back and uh, crunched some numbers and saw that there was a huge spike in priming queries uh, being sent to ARoot uh, around that time. Now, ARoot wasn't actually one of the servers affected, but because it's first, it tends to see oddball stuff, and the timing was just uh, so spot on that we thought, uh-oh, what, what's happened? Is, is there some population of, uh, uh, of resolvers that are now freaking out somehow and, and flooding ARoot with priming queries? Mm -hmm. But you're, it turns out... You're a canary out, in the coal mine, as it exactly, were. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I don't know, did I mention the rate? It was like up from very little to like 400 queries a second. Uh, well, Dwayne investigated further, and it was all coming from a single source. One name server was sending all this traffic. Wow. And the Whois data was actually good, and he uh, sent an email to the to the contacts, and uh, they got right back to us and said, uh, yeah, that's ours, and we'll look into it. And it turns out the uh, actual name server software was Cisco CNR. Remember mm -hmm. that? Oh, yeah, very well. What does CNR stand for? Cisco Network Registrar. There we go. Oh, I knew that. I don't know that I could have come up with it. I, I think that was that was in my my memory without a without a pointer to it. It was. A, mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so so it was Cisco CNR, and uh, they got back to us in a few hours, and they said, well, as part of troubleshooting, Cisco recommended that we set the max TTL parameter. No, excuse me. Uh, max cache TTL parameter to zero. 
and we've uh, we've stopped that. Uh, what do you see? And indeed, the uh, queries went away. So it appears that there is a setting in CNR on the recursive name server side that lets you basically say, uh, don't cache anything. Just set the TTL of incoming stuff to zero so it expires immediately. Hmm. And as best as we can tell, that server was going to the roots for every single query that it was resolving. <laughs> that that can't be a good idea in production. I think that you didn't didn't you mention before that it was sort of for troubleshooting purposes that you would turn this on? Well, that's what they said Cisco said, yes. Right. Right. And I guess that would be that would make some sense if you really wanted to see your name server go through uh go through the entire recursive name resolution process every time uh and you didn't want to have to worry about factoring in caching, but boy, you wouldn't want to run that in production. No, and I mean, talk about um, giving somebody rope to hang themselves with or uh, you right. know, a loaded gun to point at their head, choose your metaphor. Infrastructure unfriendly <laughs> mechanisms, right? The, like the, uh, the, the timeout mechanism in the, in the newer Windows resolvers. Yeah, exactly. But this is the first recursive name server implementation that I have ever heard about that has this ability. Have, have you ever run across anything like this? Not that I can recall, no. Um, I mean, you can turn off caching on, uh, you know, some caching stub resolvers like um, NSCD, for example. But, you know, sometimes that makes a lot of sense. Right, but not, you know, Bind, for example. No way to persuade Bind to do this, as I know you know. Well, there is, I mean, there is a max cache TTL, but I believe that there's a minimum to it. You there can't, is. You can't yeah. set it lower than, than some relatively sensible value. Yeah, I don't know about Unbound. I should, but I but I don't if it has uh, the ability to, to shut off caching. But the, you know, the Unbound developers are sensible people, so the answer is probably no, it doesn't. Yes. But I just, uh, I was stunned. And, you know, a few things start to fit together because when we look at, for example, the traffic coming into the .com and .net name servers, we see some sources that just, pummel the name servers now you know relatively speaking but uh hundreds if not sometimes up thousand two thousand queries a second from the same source wow yeah and that's a lot of traffic i mean even even allowing for a spam run or something you know i mean Mm -hmm. that's a lot of traffic so i wonder if um i wonder if it's something like this yeah well it could be it could be it's like um it's like that movie memento do you remember that is this one more thing I should add to my Netflix queue? Have you not seen Memento? With um, it's a, a Christopher Nolan film, if I remember correctly, and it uh, stars Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce, who was in L.A. Confidential. I don't think so. I've seen L.A. Confidential. Oh, okay. In Memento, um, basically the story the story is that this guy um, wakes up and he has this condition where he can't form long term memories. And oh, I've try- heard about this. Does he have like something tattooed on his? Uh- Not tattooed, actually. The the thing is that he's you know he's living this very sort of itinerant life, and he's trying to figure out who killed, I guess, his wife. And so, since he has no ability to, to uh, form long term memories, as he learns things, he writes them on himself. Interesting. You know, like don't trust so and so. He'll write on the palm of well, not maybe the palm of his hand, but you know, on his arm or something. <laughs> and so when he wakes up, he can look at himself and he can he can try to reconstruct where he is in this uh, you know in this process. It's an amazing movie, fantastic, really All worth right. seeing. 
I'll add it to the queue. Well, you know that uh, along those lines, I remember, um, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the musician, but um, this uh, this British musician had a, oh, a, st a stroke, I think, and he uh, lost the ability to form any long-term memories. It basically just, just trashed his, his uh, well, no, wait, am I getting this wrong? Or it, he basically had, yeah, he couldn't form long-term memories. No, so not he new was, ones, right? He, he still had, has, had his existing long-term memories? Correct, correct. Right. And, so the same uh, condition, yeah. Yeah, and um, except this was so severe that this guy's attention span was literally seconds. Mm -hmm. And and I remember seeing footage of him. Uh, he's had this condition for like twenty years or something, uh, and, and and I remember seeing footage of him, uh, and it's just heartbreaking, because his you know he had to be institutionalized because uh, he was you know on uh, he couldn't do anything really, but he would uh, you know his 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 wife would come in uh, to see him, and he was just thrilled to see her. And he mm -hmm. would say, "Oh, it's the." He'd literally say, "Oh, it's the it's the first time I've ever seen you." You know, even though that that obviously couldn't be the case, but right. it was it was just just wrenching. And then I remember uh, I have since read about him uh, again. He's still alive. Uh, he must be must be pushing seventy at this point, and um, you know, it's quite the quite the case study. Yeah. I, I suppose in a follow up episode, we'll have to actually give the guy's name so everyone could go read the wikipedia article and check out the youtube video but it's uh you know my my, my biggest reaction to the to, to seeing it was just um you know just again how heartbreaking it was to to, to watch someone in this in this condition just literally living moment to moment mm -hmm. yeah yeah well you know there's another uh another movie that actually touches on the same themes it's also sort of a case study it's called 50 first dates Yes, I've, I saw that on an airplane. So I have, I have seen, uh, I have seen some movies. Yeah. I, I thought that was, I thought that was kind of a cute movie. Uh, it is a cute movie. I have to say, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of Adam Sandler. Um, although I do like Drew Barrymore, but uh, but it was, very, it was really a cute movie. There's a, a a little of the sort of normal lowbrow Adam Sandler stuff, the um, you know walrus throwing up and that sort of thing. But uh, but a lot of a lot of it, I thought it was very sweet. Yeah. Well, we can't end this podcast episode on people with no short-term memory and walruses, walruses throwing up. We have to have to come up with something else. <laughs> I don't know what else I've got. Yeah, I don't um, know what else I have either. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you've been following the uh, the talks of the United Continental merger? You know, I not real closely to be really? honest. Well, apparently it's on the it's on the ropes now because uh, I guess they can't agree to uh, a price. But uh. Uh, Still might happen, I guess. And that would well, be, be an interesting development. Yeah. And speaking of flying, I'm uh, I'm headed to uh, uh, Frankfurt. Well, I, I should uh, it's uh, I should say Prague via Frankfurt uh, this week, and it appears that hopefully a volcanic ash cloud will not be in my way. Wow, I'm I'm only headed to LA tomorrow. <laughs> Got a yeah, quick, I tell you, a week ago, uh, uh, if you'd asked me if it was going to be possible for this trip i'm leaving thursday night i would have said I, I was giving it about 50 50 odds yeah 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 and it's still possible i guess that that they could uh close down european airspace again right yeah so i'm a little hesitant but 
you know, I don't, I don't want to get stuck on the wrong side of the Atlantic. You know, nothing against our European listeners, but no, no, but it's a long way from home. It is. It is. All right. Well, best of luck to you, and thank you. Uh, wish me luck getting down to L.A. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, shall I take us out? Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you, as always, for tuning in to the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. We uh, enjoy answering your questions almost as much as uh, we enjoy uh, reading them. So please uh, do submit more questions to Mr. DNS. That is mrdns at ask-mrdns.com. And we'll try to get to them as quickly as possible. We've really actually, we've, we've whittled down the backlog quite a bit, haven't we? We have, so you have to send questions, please. That's right, or it could be the end of the podcast, or you and I are just <laughs> going to have to talk about movies or uh, or uh, business travel or something like that. Yes, that ought to instill fear in people to get them <laughs> to send questions. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, anyway, as always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.